Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Last week we discussed folklore. Today we get more specific. This is what we call an urban legend. Contemporary folklore passed on as a true story. Something you might have heard about mixing pop rocks and soda. Supposedly, your stomach and your intestines burst. Voila, still alive. Mr. Ross, please. He's gonna explode! Somebody call 911! True Crime Truckers podcast, and for a record-breaking second straight episode in a row, I am joined by my wife, Amanda Gale. Hello. And so I decided to do something uh, fun for a Halloween episode, and this should drop on midnight on Halloween into November 1st. So, I thought I'd do an episode on urban legends that are based on actual true crime cases. And I've got a set of three that I'm going to tell you the urban legend, and then I'm going to tell you the crime that is actually associated with that urban legend, because some urban legends are actually based in truth. Okay. And before I get any emails or comments or anything on the episode, yes, I know that there have been other podcasts that have come out with similar episodes that have also done the same urban legends that I'm doing. And yes, I know that there is a documentary out there about urban legends called Killer Legends that has these cases in them. But I just spent the past two months writing, editing, and researching for the Manson family, and I thought I'd do something fun and easy for Halloween, so get off my jock. (laughs) Right, and I don't know any of these. Yeah, and my wife doesn't know any of these urban legends. So it's news to me. Exactly. So you're familiar with the idea of urban legends, right? Yes. That there are stories that get passed around, and they... Little parts of them, little minutia gets changed over the course of... Little what? Minutia. Minutia. Yeah. What is that? Well, look it up. Okay. It means tiny little bits of minutia. something as a whole. Who uses that word? I do. I just did. <laughs> so anyway, they get changed, but the story in itself, the basic crux of a story <clears throat> stays the same. So, and they normally are telling some sort of a moral tale 
Right. You know, it's a warning or, or something. There's a bigger story that they're trying to tell. And for the most part, urban legends are normally myths. But there are several that are based on right. on actual truth. Right. So, okay. All right. So we're going to get started with the first one. And I'm going to tell you the urban legend and see if you know it. And then I'll tell you the case that it's based on. Okay. Okay. This one is called The Hook. Okay. The hook. Yes. A young couple pulls into a lover's lane to make out with the car and the with the car radio playing. Suddenly, a news bulletin reports that a serial killer has just escaped from a nearby institution. The killer has a hook for one of his hands. The girl says that she's scared, but the boy says that there's nothing to worry about. As things start getting hot and heavy, the girl hears a scraping sound on the car door. The girl says she wants to go home, and they decide to leave. When the girl exits the car at her home, she lets out a blood-curdling scream. The boy gets out to find the killer's hook is embedded into the door itself. Have you ever heard that? No. There's several different versions of it. The boy gets out to check what the noise is, and then she hears a thumping on top of the car and as she goes up there her her boyfriend is hanging from a tree branch and there's several different versions of it i'm surprised that you've never heard of this urban legend it's quite popular i don't i don't think so okay the story is a cautionary tale bad things can happen to girls and boys who have premarital sex as I say, this has to be yeah. Don't don't about, don't fool around. Yeah, don't go parking <laughs> in lovers' lanes with boys and stuff. Don't. Although it doesn't really pertain to this day and age because there's not very many lovers' lane areas left. I want to say like that's true. I don't know very many places to park and stuff. You know, not like back in our day when we used how to will, neck in lovers' lanes all the time. Oh my god! How <laughs> will uh, how will this urban legend? Uh, Morph with Netflix and chill. <laughs> How will that? <laughs> so, uh, this urban legend is grounded in a very real case. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders. I That sounds familiar. Maybe you've mentioned that before. Okay. Well, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders were a series of unsolved murders and other violent crimes committed in and around Texarkana in the spring of 1946 by an unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer. So Texarkana is on the border of Texas and Arkansas. Hence Texarkana. Um, The killer is credited with attacking eight people within ten weeks, five of whom were killed. Uh, The attacks happened on weekends between February 22nd, 1946 and May 3rd, 1946. The first two victims, Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry, or Larray, okay. uh, they survived. So they were parked, and the unknown subject came up to their window, knocked on the window, pointed a gun at them, um, beat the man to a pulp, knocked him out, and beat him severely. Um and then told her to run, and when she ran, he caught up with her, beat her, dragged her back to the front of the car, uh, sexually assaulted her um, with the gun, penetrated her with the weapon, and thought that he had left them for dead, but they survived. Yep. 
So then the um, the first double murder involved Richard Griffin and Pollyanne Moore, and it happened four weeks later. Uh, also, they were parked in a lover's lane, and they were shot and killed. So they were the first double murder. Uh, the second double homicide involved Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Uh, they were both teenagers. They That occurred exactly three weeks after the first murder. Um, so they were found like two miles from the car that they, and they were in completely opposite directions. Yeah. So they think that he was killed first. And then she was running through the woods, and the killer caught up with her and murdered her in the woods. And they were, like, in completely opposite directions of each other. Yeah. They were were both, like, two miles away from the car or from each other? From the car, I believe. So he just chased him down. Yeah. Murdered him and then chased her down. And then the... Last murder was of Virgil Starks. He was killed, and his wife Katie was severely wounded. Now, they were attacked inside their home. So, everybody was being very cautious at the time because all the murders had happened and stuff. And she. they They were naked in their house. No, she was in the kitchen, and he was sitting in his chair in the living room, and the killer shot him through the window. And then broke into the house and shot her uh, in the face. And she managed to escape and run to a neighbor's home. And she survived, but her husband died. Oh. Yeah. Was Uh, she, like, just horribly disfigured after that? I don't know if she was horribly disfigured, but I believe it blew out part of her jaw. What was her name? Uh, Her name was Katie Starks. Katie Starks? Yeah. I'm curious. I'm not sure if you're going to find photos and stuff of her. Yeah, I don't know about after. There's just like... Well, I mean, it's 1946 and stuff, so you might be able to, but, I mean, this was... It just it shows pictures of the... Uh, it doesn't show pictures of her afterward or right. anything. It just shows pictures of, like, the news clippings. Yeah. Uh, the articles of uh, the Texarkana Gazette yeah. is what it's showing shows like crime scene photos but it doesn't show them but that would be obviously gruesome to happen so the murder sent the town of Texarkana into a state of panic throughout the summer at dusk city inhabitants heavily armed themselves and locked themselves indoors while the police patrolled streets and neighborhoods although many businesses lost customers at night the store sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and many other protective devices. Uh, several rumors began to spread, including that the killer was caught, or that the third and even fourth double homicide had been committed. Most of the town hid in fear inside of their houses or hotels, sometimes even leaving town. Some youths took matters into their own hands and tried to bait the phantoms so that they could kill them. So people would park out the lovers' lanes, the teenagers, and they would be armed. And there'd be, like, lookouts and stuff, and they were hoping that he would come to try to... That seems really stupid. Well, I mean, all the murders and stuff took place outside of the vehicle, so it wasn't like the Zodiac where, like, he would go up and just fire into the car while they were in there. He would literally have them get out and run, so... Oh, yeah. 
They were hoping by the time that they got out of the car that they would, you know, have yeah. their guns. But, like, yeah. hoping. Yeah. <laughs> You're hoping, right. but... So after three months without phantom attacks, the Texas Ranger slowly and quietly left town to keep the phantom from believing that he was safe to strike again. And the murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications. And in 1976, a film came out called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And uh, it is loosely based on the events, despite its claim that, quote, only the names have been changed, unquote, uh, because the movie claimed that, quote, the story you're about to see is true, where it happened, and how it happened, unquote, the fabricated parts created much of the myth and folklore around the murder for several decades, including there's a scene in the movie where, um, and it's based on Betty Jo's murder, which is the second double homicide. Yeah. Um, the In the movie, the killer takes ties her up to a tree, and he tapes a knife to her trombone, and he blows into the trombone, and the slide comes and, like, stabs her in the movie. And Aww. that's based on the fact that uh, Betty Jo was in a jazz band, but she was a saxophonist. And when they found her, her saxophone was missing, and it wasn't until, like, a year or two later that they found, like, the case with the saxophone. So they had believed that the killer had taken it and stuff. So the film took liberty and turned it from a saxophone into a trombone. And it's, like, one of the... It's one of the memorable parts of the movie. Oh, no. Oh, no. Please don't hurt me. That's gross. Have you seen the movie? Or did you just see uh, Yes, I've seen uh, both of them. Ugh. So, The Disappearance of Virginia Carpenter, a cold case in Texarkana in 1948, has been speculated to be the work like, of the right, Phantom. yeah. Yeah, so she's never been found, but they speculate that that may be a, a murder and she just, her body had never been located. Uh, the prime suspect in the case was U.L. Swinney, who was linked to the murders by statements from his wife. Uh, Swinney's wife refused to testify against him, and he was never convicted. Two of the lead investigators in the case, however, believed him to be guilty. In the 2000s, or maybe the 2010s, there was a remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. There's a reboot of the movie. So, it's I have seen it. I want to believe I want to say that both of them are pretty much like a shot-for-shot retelling. It's just... Yeah. Um, but it's I've seen them both like maybe once or twice, so it's hard for me to remember. Right. And it's been a long time since I've seen both of them. But every October near Halloween, the movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, uh, which I believe is the original one, which is loosely based on Texas Ranger Captain M.T. Lane Wolf Gonzalez. Uh, his investigation into the murders 
is the last movie shown to the public during the movies in the park, either at Spring Lake Park or the Southwest Center. The free event is like in that area? in Texarkana. The free event is sponsored by the Texarkana Department of Parks and Recreation. The showing of the movie has been a tradition since 2003, and about 600 people attended the showing in 2008. So every year, like, I think during the summer, sort of like where we live, they have a yeah. movies in the park <clears throat> right. where they show, you know, free movies, and it ends in, on Halloween, the weekend of Halloween or whatever, and that's the last movie that they show is The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Isn't that, like, a little morbid? I mean... It's like kind of. It's but not like it's, this stuff happened in like the eighteen hundreds. Like no, these people's it, relatives are probably still like could still be like alive. Well, it's nineteen forty six, so okay. I mean they're probably in their nineties at this point. Like if anybody was that remembers it is probably in their eighties or nineties at this point. I mean my grandmother was born in nineteen twenty eight. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like And the your 1940s. grandmother is nineties. What, 91? 92? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but she's, she's 91. Yeah, but, I don't know, that just, that seems, like, maybe not as removed mm. as, like, I feel like it would be comfortable well, to have. apparently the town enjoys watching it because it's, they do it every year and it's kind of a tradition in that town. So yeah, they play the movie that's based on the murders that happened in their town. But that urban legend is based on that because of the lover's lane. What if the Phantom is like 90 and he goes to the movies? I would say that he's more than likely dead. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't this um, Yule Sweeney. I mean, I just feel like... Which he's dead. I just feel like that's like such... uh, I don't know. I I, I feel like that's literally like such a, a far stretch anything like like for the urban legend for there to be that there's a hook and and stuff in the like the only well, they always add stuff to yeah but story. to me the only similarity is it's lovers lane yeah, and aren't there like a bunch of other urban well, the legends zodiac with, is a lovers lane killer well well but that's most what of it but that's what i'm saying so like to me it's like i guess i could see it being more related to the zodiac than to the actual urban legend that it's based on it just seems very removed like there's there's the only similarity is it's uh yes it's honey, a lover's urban lane legends thing. are loosely based on true stories not fact for fact I know I just found it interesting that it's such a different because like, it wouldn't be an urban legend if it it would be a fact I know I'm just saying like to me the hook in the urban legend is like to me that would be like the similarity it's, you know but like everything it, else could change it about adds it spookiness the hook and the scraping and the that's what adds the Am terror I supposed to, to be the story. Talking about this or not? Because you're acting like I'm wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just I'm saying, saying, like, how many serial killers do you know that have a hook for a hand? They don't have to have a hook for a hand, but like, I don't know. They could have done something else with a, a hook. I don't know. People clearly murderers aren't like in their right mind. Like, who's to say? Not that he has to have a hook for a hand, but that there could be a hook somewhere in the actual story, you know, for it to be like, oh, now this urban legend is based on, like, a hook being stuck in a car, but he shot all his victim victims, and I don't know. Well, well next time, 
that we have an episode. I'll give you a couple weeks and stuff, and you can track down who was the originator of adding the hook hand into the thing, <laughs> and we can publicly shame them on this podcast. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Yes. And, like, maybe we can find their phone number and you can call them and be like, that's bad form. Like, do better next time with your... Just be better. Yeah. So, anyway, so that, that one's okay. the first urban yeah. legend. for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. And then we have urban legend number two. Okay. And this one is called The Babysitter. Oh. And I'm sure you've probably heard this urban legend. A teenage girl is babysitting at night. The children have been put to bed upstairs, and the babysitter is downstairs watching television. The phone rings. The caller tells her to check the children. The adolescent dismisses the call and goes back to watching television. The anonymous caller dials back several times. Eventually, the babysitter calls the police, who inform her that they will trace the next call. After the stranger calls again, the police return her call, advising her to leave immediately. She evacuates the home, and the police meet her. They explain that the calls were coming from inside, inside the, the house, house. Yeah. and the unidentified prowler was calling her after massacring the children upstairs. Oh. The moral of this urban legend is supposed to be about paying attention to the children instead be of... Be a better parent. Don't leave your kids alone ever. I'm just kidding. Okay. Are you throwing shade when we get babysitters? <laughs> no, I love when we get babysitters. Exactly. <laughs> So the moral of the urban legend is supposed to be about paying attention to children instead of talking on the phone or watching TV. However, the truth behind this legend is far more sinister. A four-year span of rapes and murders of babysitters in Columbia, Missouri. Oh, really? Really. Ah. In July of 1946, which 1946, again. It's a rough year to be alive. Yeah. Well, this is a four-year span, so this will be 46 to 50. Uh, In July of 1946, Mary Lou Jenkins, a 20-year-old woman, was found murdered by the children she was watching. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. A window at the back of the house had a pane broken out, and the window had been raised. Between 1945 and 1950, there were at least a half-dozen rapes with similar details reported all of them by young women who were raped while babysitting and who said that he would kill the and who said that the the 
rapist said that he would kill the children if they woke up. Uh, in 1947, a young woman reported to police that a man had broken into the house where she was babysitting and had raped her. He had then, then tried to strangle her, and when she fell unconscious, he left. She was sure he had left, thinking that she was dead. In March of 1950, a family returned home around 1 a.m. to find their babysitter, 12-year-old Janet Chrisman, had been raped and murdered. The two children she was babysitting were found unharmed in their room. Someone had broken a window during the thunderstorm to gain access to the house. Now, the house that this murder happened in and the one that happened in 1946 were like two blocks away from each oh. other. A man named Robert Muller who had harassed Chris. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> yeah, Robert Muller. His name is Robert Muller. No relation. <laughs> Are we sure? I'm pretty sure. A man named Robert Muller, who had harassed Chrisman, was arrested and convicted of her murder. He eventually won an appeal and a lawsuit against the state of Missouri for wrongful conviction and left the area. However, if Muller wasn't the right man, then the right man was paying very close attention, because once Muller was arrested, no more babysitter rapes happened. So he was a friend of the... Um, family right. of the people that the she was babysitting. Oh, okay. And the uh, husband and wife of the kids uh, had said that this Robert Muller was making, like, unwanted advances towards the babysitter and, like, saying very, like, explicit things about... Right, like, her. Yeah, yeah. About a 12-year-old girl. Right. And so that was what they based... And um, is that she was yeah, one of the yeah. victims and he was doing yes, all that stuff. Yes, exactly. But he, his conviction... But they found no other ties between him and the other families? Um, no. As far as I know, they didn't. Okay, yeah. So that babysitter myth is actually based on several uh, murders. And spawned off uh, several different movies... Based off of the urban legend, the most famous ones is When a Stranger Calls. Yeah. Which is about a babysitter and the calls from in the house. And right. So the original one was from the 1980s, and then they remade it in the 2000s because we reboot every horror movie that ever comes out. Hello? Have you checked the children? What? Hello, could you get me the police? just begins when a stranger calls so Lee so we're one for two on urban legends that you that you know so that's good I mean I, I haven't heard of like that specific 
I, I you feel haven't like heard I've of the like, cases. I, no, I feel like I've heard like a, a variation of. Well, that. yeah, there's always different right. variations. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just uh, I think it was like a little different, but. So the different variations of that story is like uh, the one that I gave is that the kids are murdered. There's another variation where the kids and her are murdered. There's a variation where the kids are safe. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's. Uh, a variation of where she survives and the police don't catch the guy. You know, he murders the children. They say the call comes from the house, but they never capture the the killer. And yeah. then she grows up to be a mom and has kids of her own. And one night she receives a phone call and it says, you know, have you checked the children and it's the same foot like yeah there's always different versions of these stories i feel like that one's even worse oh yeah that one's even worse to like uh yeah yeah, good like to have all that and then you grow up and have your own kids but the moral of the story being of you know teenage babysitters and stuff is to you know do your job and pay attention to the children instead of you know like especially back then and like the yeah 50s and 60s and 70s where teenage girls would you know talk on the phone all the all the time and, and stuff i mean nowadays it would be texting and right and doing you know twitter or tiktok or whatever social media the kids do nowadays so yeah ooh, yeah. that one's spooky yeah that one's spookier than the other one yeah So, now we're on to urban legend number three. This is the final urban legend. Okay. And, since this is coming out for Halloween, this one is about poisoned candy. (laughs) Those are my favorite warnings every year. So, a young child goes out trick-or-treating with his friends on Halloween. When he gets home with his bag full of goodies, he asks his parents if he can have a piece of candy. The parents agree that he can have some before bed, and a short while later, they hear a horrible noise coming from the child's bedroom. They enter to find their child convulsing and foaming from the mouth. The Halloween candy was poisoned, and the child dies. The moral of this urban legend is that parents should be vigilant and children shouldn't trust strangers. However, the basis for this urban legend is far more sinister. So have you heard that? urban legend about poison candy no you never heard i that. mean i've heard like that's an issue that's a thing every year yes that you've never heard out, but people i haven't saying like yeah oh in my town like you know there was a boy that was poisoned or that they found razor blades or needles and, well yes that's this that's what i'm saying like i haven't heard the urban legend of it i've heard i guess all the after effects of it like even now it's I'm not I'm not saying that this is particularly like how the story goes, but there's always reports of 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost every Halloween. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, on October 31st, 1974, Ronald Clark O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in Pasadena, Texas. Uh, O'Brien's neighbors and his two children accompanied them. After visiting a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, the children grew impatient and ran ahead to the next home while O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with the group and produced five 21-inch pixie sticks, the big long ones, which he would later claim was given from the occupant of the house that oh, had that not, did answered not answer the door. The door? Okay. At the end of the evening, O'Brien gave each of his neighbors two children a pixie stick and one to each of his children, Timothy and Elizabeth. Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth pixie stick to a ten-year-old boy whom he recognized from his church. Before bed, Timothy asked if he could eat some of the candy he collected, choosing the pixie stick. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered candy out of the straw, so O'Brien helped him loosen the powder. After tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. O'Brien then gave his son Kool-Aid to wash away the taste. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt and ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting and convulsing. O'Brien later claimed that he held Timothy while he was vomiting and the child went limp in his arms. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital less than an hour after consuming the candy. Uh, Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy prompted fear in the community. Numerous parents in Deer, in Deer Park and the surrounding area returned candy their children acquired from trick-or-treating to police, fearing it was laced with poison. Uh, Police did not initially suspect O'Brien of any wrongdoing until Timothy's autopsy revealed that the pixie stick he consumed was laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. Four of the five pixie sticks O'Brien claimed to receive were recovered by authorities from other children, none of whom consumed the candy. The parents of the fifth child became hysterical when they could not locate the candy when the police called at their house to inform them. The parents rushed upstairs to find their son asleep, holding the unconsumed poison candy. The boy had been unable to open the staples that sealed the wrapper shut. All five of the pixie sticks had been opened with the top two inches refilled with cyanide powder and were resealed with a staple. According to the pathologist who tested the pixie sticks, the candy consumed by Timothy contained enough cyanide to kill two adults while the other four candies contained dosages that could kill three to four adults. Oh. Yeah. O'Brien initially told police that he could not remember which of the houses he got the pixie sticks from. Police became suspicious of his excuses because O'Brien and his neighbors had only taken the children to homes on two streets because it had been raining. Their suspicions increased after learning that none of the homes the group had visited had handed out pixie sticks. After walking the neighborhood with police three times, O'Brien led them to the home that the group visited, but whose occupant did not answer the door. O'Brien claimed that he revisited the home before catching up with the group. He said that the owner of the home did not turn the lights on, but cracked the door, opened, and handed him five pixie sticks. He claimed to have only seen the man's arm, which he described as hairy. 
Uh, the home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, and Melvin was an air traffic controller at Hobby Airport, which was the local airport, right. and he did not get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. And police ruled Melvin out as a suspect when nearly 200 people converged Confirmed, confirmed he was at work. That Melvin was in fact right. at work, yes. As their investigation furthered, the police learned that Ronald O'Brien was over $100,000 in debt and had a history of being unable to hold a job. In 10 years preceding the crime, O'Brien held 21 jobs, and at the time of his arrest, he was suspected of theft at his job at Texas State Optical and was close to being fired. His car was about to repossess, and he had defaulted on several bank loans and had the family's home foreclosed on. Police discovered that O'Brien had taken out life insurance policies on his children in the months preceding Timothy's death. In January of 1974, he had taken a $10,000 life insurance policies out on both of his children. One month before Timothy's death, O'Brien took out an additional $20,000 policy on both children, despite the objections of his life insurance agency. Oh. Also, in the days preceding Timothy's death, O'Brien had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. The various policies totaled approximately $60,000, and O'Brien's wife maintained that she did not know about the insurance policies on her children's lives. Uh, police also learned that the morning after Timothy's death, O'Brien had called his insurance company to inquire about collecting on the policies that he had taken out on his son. After learning that O'Brien had visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide shortly before Halloween of 1974, he left without purchasing any after learning the smallest amount available to purchase was five pounds. Police began to suspect that O'Brien killed his son. Police theorized that O'Brien laced the candies with poison in an effort to kill his children to collect on their life insurance policies, and they believed that he gave other children the candy in an effort to cover up his crime. Right. To, yeah. The other children never consumed the candy, and police repeatedly questioned O'Brien, but he maintained his innocence. Ronald Clark O'Brien was convicted of first-degree murder and executed by lethal injection on March 31st, 1984. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Yeah. Oh. He was, it's called, he was called the Candyman? The Candyman. Oh. Not to be confused with Dean Coral, who was a, can, who was a serial killer in Houston, Texas, also known as the Candyman. It's because his family had a, a candy business that they owned. Oh, that's awful. So that's where the urban legend of poisoned Halloween candy or candy with razor blades and stuff came from. That's terrible. Yes. That is very terrible. Oh. To just, like, I mean, $20,000, $20, that doesn't even yeah. cover the amount of debt he was in. Yeah. I mean, well, it was sixty grand total if oh, he yeah, would have. Right. Because yeah. he was trying to kill both of his children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is so terrible. I know that's always a thing every year, you know, like, yeah. check the candy, don't yeah. keep any, which I think is and also valid, like, any candy that's open well, or whatever, you know what I mean, just I throw mean, it away. So, I, I looked up and did 
some Not more that it's research been on. It's like just throw it, just yeah. throw it away. So I've, it so I've done some, yeah. So I've done some research on the idea of this, you know, because you hear every year about you know poisoned candy or candy with razor blades or needles or you know there's always some story every year that goes on with and um so every halloween there have always been stories of poison candy being passed out or candy with razors or needles in it and in more modern times there's been candy that has been laced with thc right. i.e edibles or ecstasy pills that look like Smarties, etc. Right. Here is the truth behind these urban legends. Joel Best, the nation's top and perhaps only researcher on Halloween candy contamination, has publicly stated, quote, I've done research and I can't find any evidence that any child has been killed or seriously hurt by any candy picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. My view is this is overblown. You can't prove a negative, but it seems unlikely, unquote. So every case of a child being poisoned by Halloween candy, they knew the person. That's not to say that kids don't get poisoned by Halloween candy. It's always a relative or a close acquaintance. It's never a stranger's house that they go trick-or-treating at that those poison candies have been... Right tied back to. Right. It's always somebody that they knew. So, the fears are pretty new, as is the concept of trick-or-treating. Trick-or-treating is fairly new to the U.S. Trick-or-treating largely began as a phenomenon after World War II to counter the shenanigans that older adolescents were involved in around Halloween, such as covering houses in toilet paper and tipping over outhouses. Communities figured that if they embraced Halloween and turned it into a mainstream holiday that children could participate in, the pranks, or at least some of them, would go away. So, as the idea spread, more communities participated, and fears of dangerous candy and other hazards also began to pop up fairly quickly. So that's where you get the idea of yeah. trick or treat. Because before World War II, Halloween was kids would go around and, and egg people's houses or oh, toilet yeah. paper. And so when they embraced it and started doing, you know, passing out candy and stuff, that's where the quote triggered. So you either give me a candy or I'm going to do a Pulse trick. Sort of a like, trick. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to, oh. like, toilet paper your house or, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, trick or treating <clears throat> has only gone on for, you know, what is it, 70 years now since okay, post-World yeah, War II? I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's it's not a, you know, the the holiday's been around for a long time. Right, yeah. But the course. actual idea of trick-or-treating is fairly, fairly recent. Huh. Um, Joel says, quote, The older versions of this that I know of were stories in the early 1950s about people heating pennies on skillets and then dumping the hot pennies in the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters, unquote. This morphed by the 1960s into poison and pins in candy bars, unquote. But there is no evidence for the poison candy scares. In a study published in 1993, Best looked for credible reports of poisoned Halloween candy, finding no plausible cases up to that point. 
Since then, he has continued to scour for feasible reports, but again, has found no credible cases. Huh. As for the scares about sharp objects like pins, needles, and razors in candy, Best has found 100 100 reports of this happening since 1958. That amounts to fewer than two cases a year in a country of hundreds of millions of people. Right. But even that tally may be inflated. According to Best, studies that followed up on such reports found that the vast majority, 95% or more, were hoaxes. Right. So every time that you hear, oh, you know, I knew a person that, like, they bit into a candy bar and there was a needle in there, and it more than likely, it's a hoax. Well, I've never heard someone say they know someone. Yeah. It's always just been like... It's always... Yeah, it's always they knew somebody who knew somebody. Or any time that you see a media report where they report that, like, there was something that was found in candy. When the police investigated, it turns out that it was made up. Yeah, no, I've never heard The person did it themselves. And the news never reports on that secondary case. Which causes the myth to... Continue to be perpetuated. Yeah, I've never heard someone say they knew someone or, like, it was that close to them. It's just always a thing every year of, like, checking candy and you can take it to the police station Mm -hmm. and have it checked out. And I'm like, how? Well, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. And as for the modern day version of this myth where it's ecstasy pills that look like candy or, you know, edibles that look like gummy bears or candy or whatever that are passed out to children. Drugs are expensive. (laughs) Drugs are very, very expensive. Right. And nobody is buying hundreds of dollars of drugs to pass out to random kids to dose. Yeah, that also just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it's never happened. There's never been an actual verified case of that ever that happening. Ever happening. Yeah. Every time that it has come up where it's been a kid that has been dosed by, it turns out that it was the parents that had the candy or something, and they right. either gave it to the kids or the kids accidentally got a hold of it, and the parents didn't want to get in trouble, so they said, like, oh, they got it from trick-or-treating. Well, or, has that actually ever happened? Yeah, there yeah. was a kid, I want to say a year or two years ago, that uh, got dosed, I want to say it was edibles, like THC, so it was marijuana, and they had, like, um, like no harm or whatever, but they definitely, like, were freaking out, and, like, the ambulance got called and stuff, and it turned out it was the parents. They had left it somewhere where the kid had gotten a hold of it. Yeah. So it seems that even though the myth of Halloween candy that has been tampered with prevails, we as a society hold the tradition sacred, and we do not harm children during the curse of this holiday. So relax, and have a happy Halloween. (laughs) Happy Halloween. For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match 
It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash truecrimetrucker slash. Also, if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com slash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.